0: Father God, we have much to thank you for, thank you for the way that you've been at work in our church during this challenging year and a half plus as it goes on. Thank you for providing us the kind of resources that we have that uh, we are able to contribute. Thank you for allowing us to live in this part of the world where we have greater affluence than in many other places, but also thank you for giving us the responsibility. Of investing back in things that make a difference and things that you are doing in this world. thank you for this congregation, for the things that we're learning together and for the growth that we are finding. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for allowing us to have the Word of God in print in our own language and with a number of different translations so that we can wrestle with it and we can come to greater understanding. Thank you for the freedoms that we have in this land and for hundreds of years of history of protecting that freedom and for cherishing it, even for those who disagree with us, nonetheless, that we have the freedom to worship openly and the freedom to share our ideas and to disagree with one another and to debate with one another. We are so grateful for this land, as imperfect as it is, because there are so many cherished values that we benefit from. And so, God, we ask that you would continue to allow us to to grow as a church, to grow as individual people in our faith, and to know Jesus more deeply. I pray that you would use all of what we're doing here today, uh, the moments when we are singing our praises to you, the moments when we're looking to understand your word, and as we interact with each other, bring all these things together and work your good into our lives. So thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture this morning is in Ruth chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter, but I'm going to read verses 5 through 18. So for the, the past two weeks, we've been in a series that we're calling Hope When Your World Falls Apart. And we've been tracking the story of Ruth and Naomi in the Old Testament book of Ruth. just happens to be my favorite Old Testament book. Uh, happens to be the only book that I translated back when I was a student years ago from Hebrew to English, but there's so much depth in this little story that's often neglected because ultimately it's not just a story of how two people, two widows face tragedy, it's ultimately a story of redemption that leads all the way to our identification with Jesus as the ultimate redeemer, and we'll begin to see that this morning a bit. This is Ruth chapter 3 starting with verse 5. "'I will do whatever you say,' Ruth answered. "'So she went down to the threshing floor "'and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. "'When Boaz had finished eating and drinking "'and was in good spirits, "'he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. "'Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. "'In the middle of the night, something startled the man. "'He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. "'Who are you?' he asked. "'I am your servant, Ruth,' she, she said.' Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a family guardian. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a family guardian, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your family guardian, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. There's an old story about an old man who was traveling with a boy and a donkey. As they walked through a village, the old man was leading the donkey with the boy following behind. And the villagers told the old man that he was being foolish, that he should be riding the donkey, not leading it as he walked along the path. So the old man climbed on the donkey and he rode to the second village where they told the old man that he was cruel for making the boy walk. So he got off the donkey, put the boy on it, and headed to a third village. There at the third village, the people claimed that the boy was lazy for making the old man walk while he was riding, so the old man joined the boy, and together they rode the donkey to the fourth village. There the people were indignant over the cruelty of two able-bodied people riding the same donkey. Frustrated, the old man was last seen carrying the donkey down the road to another village. (laughs) One of the most important challenges in this life centers on finding advice that you can trust. So here's a person who went from village to village to village and got differing advice in every situation. Now I tell you that story because this morning we're looking at part three of our Hope When Your World Falls Apart series. And the key issue centers around the risk that Ruth takes on the basis of trusting the advice of her mother-in-law, Naomi, and also on the basis of trusting in the Redeemer who would offer to rescue her and her family out of their dramatic poverty. This short series is based on observations from the Old Testament book of Ruth. It's the story of two women who suffer through an incredible season of personal loss that seemed like their world had fallen apart. Yet their story is about moving from hopelessness to hope, from bitterness to better days filled with God's mercy from ruin to redemption. So welcome to North River Church. I am so glad that you are here today. And let me welcome all of those who are watching online and who are part of our congregation today. We are one congregation moving through a challenging time, yet united by our desire to understand the hope that God provides for us through Jesus. Today's question that I have in mind is, how is a 3,200-year-old book of Ruth relevant for today's risks. And our topic is the risk of trusting the Redeemer. Now in most of these messages that I give, I am what I call a, a, a big idea preacher, meaning that there's one central idea that we are trying to get across and everything else should tie into that. If you're ever wondering what this big idea thing is, it keeps me grounded to the text, but also grounded to one central idea so that hopefully I can convey that clearly to you in a way that becomes memorable. So here's the big idea for this morning. In the midst of this beautiful and broken world, God rewards the bold decisions of those who trust Jesus, the Redeemer. So we're in the third week of a series. Some of you haven't been with us for this entire time. Let me just give you a very quick overview of this series. What we've learned so far, three things. Number one, the entire book of Ruth takes place during a season of crisis. We saw that the account of Ruth and Naomi takes place during the period of the judges, which was about a 300-year period of time, where God raised up some individual leaders who had moral authority over Israel, and they brought them back out of times of great political harassment or or military uh, defeat or economic deficit. This season of crisis included religious distress, military distress, and economic distress. Then we also saw that God cares about hopeless people. So when we start the story, we are introduced to a family where everything falls apart, and we're left with two widows who are moving back from a foreign country into uh, Israel, and specifically to the town of Bethlehem. Naomi, who grew up there, but Ruth, who's never lived there, and who is an outsider to Israel's culture. And third, we saw that God works behind the scenes for our personal deliverance. That's what we talked about for the most part last week. This morning, what I'd like to present are some redemptive reminders for tough times. We are never always quite sure when the tough times are coming or how long they will last. Boy, have we learned that lesson in the last 20 months. But I'd like to point out three redemptive reminders that rise from chapter 3 of this Old Testament book of Ruth. Here's the first one. Bad things happen to God's people in a broken world. Can I say that again? In the day of prosperity, preachers, where there are people who want to tell you that everything's going to work out, everything's going to be perfect in your life if you just believe in Jesus, I'd like you to know that there's a different message that the Bible has. And part of it is that bad things do happen to God's people in the midst of a broken world. We start off in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, one day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, to Ruth, that is, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be provided for. Ruth is not simply an ancient love story designed to make us feel good. If we wanted to be overly simplistic about Ruth, we would make this a romance novel and where we would give off the idea that there's a Boaz for every Ruth and if you just wait for the right amount of time, it'll all happen and it'll all fall together. That is not the message of Ruth. That is an American way of sometimes oversimplifying. Yes, there is a wonderful story of kindness, love, and marriage that surrounds the story of Ruth. But we must never forget the context. Ruth is a story that starts with three men in the same family dying in a very short period of time, followed by the tremendous grief that bonded Ruth and Naomi. If you are grieving over a lost loved one, there is never a right time when it should be over. It's always personal. It's always different with every act of grieving that we go through in life. And it's, I find it tremendously encouraging that there's an entire book of the Old Testament that is dedicated to the lives of two women who are wrapped up in this grief and trying to forge their way forward and still make something of life. God values what you are going through. Essentially, we meet Ruth and Naomi as they are struggling to make sense of how fast their world fell apart. The first five verses of chapter 1 paint a picture of personal devastation. The family left Bethlehem, sold off their land because of a prolonged famine. Famine in in an agricultural society affects everything. Jobs are lost. Food is hard to come by. Resources cost more as deprivation sets in. Some people starve or leave or just simply disappear. They move to a different country where they live on the margins as outsiders. And then grief sets in as Naomi's husband and both sons die far too young. So by the close of the first chapter, we are focused on two widows moving back to Israel, back to Bethlehem, without any immediate family or source of income. And we wonder, how will they make sense of all of this? What do you say when your friends encounter incredibly rough times? They do come, and they do happen to families like yours and mine, too. Back in 1981, Rabbi Harold Kushner, who's interestingly from Natick, wrote a book that provided one option of how we can look at these things. His book was very popular, and it was called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. The book was a response to discovering that his three-year-old son was born with a condition that would only allow him to live until his early teens. Some of the answers that he provides in this book are very helpful. He appeals to the book of Job in the Old Testament quite a bit. He helps prepare us for the realization that we live in a world that is broken, but in the end, he pictures a God who is not able to fix all of our problems, maybe even not any of them. When I read the scriptures, I find a God who is all-powerful, but who recognizes that we are living in a world that is both beautiful and broken in many ways at the same time. Yet our God meets us in the midst of this brokenness. He does not abandon us ever. And the greatest evidence of that is found in the sending of Jesus. Jesus not only identified with us in this brokenness, he is able to transform the way we experience it. So through the course of the Bible, we meet Joseph, who spent 13 years in prison, and we learn that God was with him each day that he was in that prison. He didn't understand what he was going through at the time, But we know from the way the story is narrated that God never abandoned him. God was leading him and preparing him through all of that time. We encounter Daniel's three friends who stand up for their faith against a whole culture that is worshiping an idol, and they end up going into a a massive fire as a punishment. But instead of burning up, they are met in the midst of the fire by a fourth man whom King Nebuchadnezzar says looks like a son of the gods. And we are left to wonder to this day, who was that? Who was the fourth man in the fire? Was it an angel? Was it possibly a pre-incarnate visit by Jesus himself? I don't know for sure, but I lean toward the latter because of the descriptive words that are used that this one looks like a son of the gods. I wonder to this day, what was the conversation they had in the midst of the fire? Don't you? And we meet Jesus who goes against the friends who wish to save him from suffering on his pathway toward the cross. And there he takes on the sins of the world onto his own back and he carries them to that cross. This same Jesus today sits at the right hand of the Father as our advocate and he fights for you and he prays for you and he calls upon the powers of heaven to be involved in your life and in my life strengthening us to go through whatever challenges may exist in this world. So here's the first lesson we, we learned from the book of Ruth. That bad things do happen to God's people in the midst of a broken world. Our world is absolutely wonderful, but there are parts of it that are phenomenally broken, and we've contributed to that brokenness. Here's the second lesson for this morning. Tough times call for bold decisions. Look at the way chapter 3 begins. This is the part I left out, but I wanted to emphasize it now. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley down on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know that you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. Whoa, this is a bold move. How many of you have given advice like this to your daughters? None of you, right? I would hope not. This is a -a one-of-a-kind scenario. We... We see that Naomi sends Ruth down to the threshing floor where Boaz has been working all day. What was Boaz doing? We learn that Boaz will be winnowing barley down on the threshing floor. This is a process of separating the grain from the stalks that cover it after the harvest. After roughing up the stalks, the barley was thrown into the air to let the wind drive away all the chaff, all of the stuff that ultimately cannot be eaten, eaten so that the grain will fall to the floor and can be gathered. A farmer like Boaz would hire seasonal workers for this process. And after working late into the day, the men would eat and sleep during the season because it was a short season that they did this kind of work. The narrator later adds that after eating and drinking, when Boaz was in good spirits, then he would find a place to sleep. So Naomi sends Ruth to this winnowing floor where you get the sense that Boaz has had enough to drink, that he's really in good spirits, This seems like a recipe where nothing good can come out of it, and yet it's the bold move that Naomi sends her daughter-in-law to that sends a signal to Boaz. The boldest part of this plan was that Ruth would be the only woman there at night. There's a whole lot of suggestiveness that is built into this scene. It's late at night. Ruth is wearing perfume. She's wearing her best clothes. Does this sound like a risky plan to you? It does to me. The risks that Ruth would run into were weighed against the character of Boaz. Now, there are people who interpret Ruth's uncovering of Boaz's feet as a sexual act, but that runs contrary to the character development that we have seen in Boaz so far, and that is critical to the story. I believe that those who do this are trying to bring Boaz and Ruth down to today's level rather than reading the story for what it really presents. This is a bold move after a series of bold moves. If we track through the story so far, this is what we'll discover. Bold move number one was when Naomi decided to return to Bethlehem empty-handed. Bold move number two came when Ruth decided to put her trust in Naomi, Naomi's God, and Naomi's people. Remember, we we read those beautiful words where she says, uh, where you go, I will go, and there I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Bold move number three is when Ruth, a Moabite, decides to glean in the fields to scavenge for food. She's joining the poorest of the poor, walking onto land of people that she doesn't know so she can walk behind the harvesters and pick whatever grain is left over. And we find there that Boaz begins to notice her. He tells his workers to pull out some of the grains from the stocks that they're gathering and to leave them in the field for her, and she goes away with far more than she ever dreamed that she would. Boaz knows that Ruth is caring for one of his relatives, and he admires this from a distance. Bold move number four comes in this chapter where Naomi sends Ruth to the threshing floor essentially to propose to Boaz. All right, for those of you who are traditionalists who think that's always the role for the man to propose to the woman, the Bible here in this case blesses the story of Ruth who proposes in the middle of the night to Boaz. And Boaz gets the hint. He realizes, perhaps as an older man, notice the comment that he makes, you've not run after the younger men. So now we have a little bit more understanding of Boaz. Perhaps Boaz is a widower And he's not dreaming that a younger woman like Ruth would be interested in him. But she's drawn by his character. And she's trusting in his character that night. And she's sending the signal. You're a family guardian. We'll explain what that is in a moment. Protect me and act on my behalf. So let's talk about this bold move theology that we're seeing here. God seems to bless the bold moves of those who have a nature that is bent toward action. Think of Jonathan, when he and his armor-bearer take on 30 Philistines. Jonathan gets up early in the morning before all the other men in the army, and he says to his armor-bearer, let's go pick a fight with the Philistines and see if God is with us. (laughs) He doesn't have some word from God that says, you know, I'm going to protect you in the midst of an impossible situation with impossible odds, by the way, they have one sword between them and they're going to go up against these Philistines who are uh, very, very armed. They climb up a cliff and they, th- together they take on these 30 Philistines, two against 30, and God gives them a great victory that day. Think of Peter and John preaching in the streets of Jerusalem despite the warnings of arrest that have come. Now here's the point. So long as we are not violating clear commands from God, he often blesses our bold moves. Perhaps he even inspires them. I remember 25 years ago or so when Jerry Kamen and Alan Fisher and I went and talked with uh, one of the members of the Tedeschi Realty Group. And we talked to them about this particular piece of land. We'd been studying open pieces of land. We were meeting in a rented facility across the highway. And after looking at about 40 different sites, we determined this was the best site for North River to exist. The problem was... It was expensive land, and we had no idea how expensive, but we made our best home run pitch. I think we offered $400,000 for some of the best of this land. By the way, it was $400,000 that we didn't have. We were just convinced that we could raise that. And we, we made our best pitch, and they listened to us, and at the end of that, they said, please leave us alone. You don't need land like this for a church. You should be tucked away in a neighborhood somewhere. And the problem with your offer is you have champagne taste and a Diet Coke budget. That is a direct quote. So we moved on to other pieces. And then a few years later, my friend Mark Dickinson was playing golf with two of the men who were from the Tedeschi Realty Group. And they were talking about different parcels of land that they were developing. Mark was a real estate developer at the same time, too. And they got to this particular particular piece of land. What they didn't know was that Mark and their family had started coming to our church. And they got, when they talked about this particular piece of land, Something had happened where uh, Ralph Tedeschi, the founder of that realty group, had died that summer. And so his son said, We're looking for a nonprofit to give this piece of land to. And Mark stuck his nose in and said, What about the church? What church? They said, North River. They said, You go there? He said, Yeah, let me tell you what I'm learning. And over a, a golf game, they decided to give us this land, all of it, not just some of it, 44 acres right on the highway for $500,000. It was only $100,000 more than we had offered years before having no idea what it was worth. Did we make that happen? No. Did Mark make that happen? No. God did something through a bold move that made no sense in any economic reality, but it made sense in the mind of God and he made it make sense in the hearts of human beings that had to pull the trigger. This congregation then made the next bold move in faith when we set out to build this worship center when we didn't have the money to do so. And we moved forward, and all the pieces came together over time, and God blessed what we have done together. I think there is something about a bold move theology that is at work sometimes when we see what God can do and we move in that direction together. And that's what Ruth was doing that night. Here's the third redemptive reminder for tough times that helps us. We learn here that our Redeemer can be trusted. So we go a little bit farther in the story, into the conversation in the middle of the night between Boaz and Ruth. Boaz is speaking, he says, And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a family guardian, There is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your family guardian, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. Notice the role that Boaz plays in this family. Several Bible translations label this role differently. For instance, the most recent version of the New International Version that I was using this morning calls this role a family guardian. The older version of the NIV called it a kinsman redeemer. That's the term I grew up with. The New Living Translation calls this role a family redeemer, and it may actually be the most accurate for our language at this time. All of them are trying to describe the Hebrew concept of the word goel in Hebrew. Will you say that with me? Goel. This is a very specific role that was provided within Jewish culture. This, this person had to be a close family member who bore the responsibility of protecting someone if they fell into great debt so that they would buy them out of that debt and pay that off so that the land would never be lost to a family, or buying somebody, by paying, buying somebody out of a prisoner of war status by paying the ransom price that was required to free them. There were three requirements for a family redeemer or for a goel if we use the Hebrew term. First is that the redeemer needed to be someone who was a close family member. And so if you notice in the story that comes with, with Boaz, he mentions that there's somebody else who's a closer family member who has a responsibility toward Ruth and Naomi. We'll get into that a little bit in a moment and we'll talk more about it next week. Second, the Redeemer needed to have the means. In other words, had to be able to to pay off this debt or to meet the ransom price. The third requirement was the Redeemer needed to be willing to take on this responsibility. There might be a number of factors that would cause somebody not to be willing to do this. Or maybe it would be a a financial uh, situation where it would put the person at too much risk. Boaz tells Ruth that there was another Redeemer who is closer in line than himself. Boaz knows that family protocol gives this man the right to respond first. And there might have been a benefit for doing that. The man could redeem Elimelech's land by paying off the debt that the land had incurred. And then he'd be able to farm that land and add it to his own. And the the, the goal was that uh, he would raise up somebody in the name of Elimelech's family so that the line would continue on. But it might be to great economic value for a redeemer to step in. But Ruth's proposal concerns more than the land. She has asked Boaz to redeem her too, her personally. And so there's a second ancient principle that was at work here. It's known as the Leveret Law. In Hebrew, the word levir means brother. And this is what it referred to. When a man died without a son, meaning a male heir, it fell to his brother to marry the widow and then to raise up a son in the deceased brother's name so that one day the heir would receive all of that property. Boaz knew that if this closer relative exercised his right to the land, in other words, to, to pay off the mortgage on the land, that he would identify himself who was also responsible for Ruth and Naomi, meaning he was tying together the, the responsibility of redeeming the land to the role of the leveret law. So Boaz knew that this would obligate the man to marry Ruth. So chapter 3 ends with this tension of wondering whether this closer Redeemer will redeem Ruth and the land, but we also know that Boaz has indicated that he is already a willing Redeemer, that he will redeem Ruth, and Ruth trusts him. All of this is a picture of Jesus, the ultimate family Redeemer. Jesus met the first requirement because he became one of us at Christmas when he took on human life. That's what the miracle of Christmas is all about. It's that the very Son of God who had existed from eternity would step into creation and become part of the human race and identify with us so clearly. Jesus, as the sinless Son of God, also had the means, meaning he had the ability to take on our sin. He could pay for it where I could not pay for yours and you could not pay for mine. And Jesus was willing, choosing to embrace the cross and its shame as a means of our redemption. This is why it is necessary for us to put our trust and our faith in Jesus as our redeemer. Only Jesus is able and willing to pay the ransom price for our sins, only Jesus. This is what separates Christian faith, biblical Christian faith, from every other religion in the world because all the other religions are are about what you have to do in order to somehow improve yourself and bring yourself up to God. But God's plan was his son would come and he would become one of us and he would take on all that responsibility which would allow us to be freed from our sins and therefore to have a restored relationship with a holy God. This is the exclusive path of Christianity. It is inclusive that it is open to everybody but it is exclusive in the pathway that no one else is capable or qualified to do what Jesus has done for us. There is only one Redeemer, the man Christ Jesus. So here, as we approach this Thanksgiving season, I have to tell you, I am so thankful that we have a Redeemer who can be trusted. We've talked the last few weeks about what we love about Naomi and what we love about Ruth. I'd like to tell you a little bit about what I love about Boaz. Boaz acts as a man of standing. That's the way he's identified early on in the story. A person of great character. I love about Boaz that he is a close family member. He's able to pay the ransom and he's willing to do so. And he steps in for Naomi and Ruth. But what I love most of all about Boaz is that he helps us understand and visualize our need for Jesus as our personal redeemer. So here's the question that rises naturally from this story and from this chapter. Have you received Jesus as your family redeemer, as your personal redeemer? He gave up all the privileges of heaven to become one of us, to become part of the human family with all the troubles that we experience. And as a sinless son of God, he's able to take our sins to the cross and fully pay the penalty that we are due. And he came for this purpose. He came to buy you and me out of the wreckage of sin, out of the wreckage of our own personal rebellion, out of our own stupidity sometimes. And he offers us a new spiritual start as children of God by the invitation of Jesus. Christianity is not about people who are better than everybody else. It's about people who have come near to Jesus and who have taken him up on his offer and who get to start again and rebuild life from the inside out. Now, the key to all this is a transfer of trust, that you put your faith in Jesus and he takes your sin to the cross. Have you received Jesus as your Redeemer? Here's the big idea that we've been talking about. In the midst of this beautiful and broken world, God rewards the bold decisions of those who trust Jesus, the Redeemer. And we've seen that Ruth makes a bold decision back in chapter one, when she tells Naomi, your people will be my people and your God, my God. And God calls for that kind of bold decision for people who live in this world of ours today, for you and me. I wonder if there's some here this morning who haven't made that decision yet, and maybe if this is the moment when all of that gets clarified. I'm going to pray a simple prayer of commitment that I put in the the notes, if you pick those up, or they'll be on the screen behind me. And maybe you can just whisper along as I pray this prayer, uh, but this is for those of you who need to make that bold decision and maybe you're at the point where God's spirit is moving you to do that right now. So join me in this simple prayer. Lord Jesus, now I get it. You have come as my redeemer. Cleanse my record of sin and rebellion. I put my faith in you. As I turn toward you in faith, thank you for giving me a new start. And help me to live as a child of God by by faith. Lord, we all join together and we, we thank you this morning for the way that you work in our lives. Thank you for this church. Thank you for all the people who are part of this fellowship. It's growing, it's changing, it's dynamic. Thank you that we can welcome people into the process of what we are learning together for none of us is the completed project. You are working inside of all of us and you are working on all of us and you are working through all of us thank you for valuing us enough to send jesus we may never understand the depths of your love that would motivate you to do such a great thing we may never fully understand the depth of jesus love that he would be willing to give up everything and risk it all for the sake of people like us thank you for your grace It allows us to have a clean start. Thank you for your ongoing work through your Holy Spirit of refining us, of transforming us, of little by little shaping our character and making us more like Jesus. Not so that we become self-righteous, but that we are filled with your righteousness that leads us to share where we found hope and help with others. Allow us to make a difference in this world and to be known as those who live out their faith day by day with joy, with laughter, also stepping forward after our failures and picking up and starting again. Thank you for this wonderful, rich life that you have made possible for us. And We receive it as children of faith because of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray to you today. It's in his name that we continue to worship you and that we go out into the world to serve you.